Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 23rd, 2023. And back with us this week is Mayor Rick Blangiardi. Mayor, how are you doing this week? Really well, Brandy. Good to be back. And we have a very special guest joining us today, Managing Director Mike Formby. Mike, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. And this is our first podcast with the MD joining us. Mayor, can you tell us a little bit about how this relationship started? Well, I had the benefit of knowing Michael back in a couple of his former roles when I was working in broadcast and was always impressed with him uh, whenever he would come into our conference room and whatever he was talking about. And then I had the occasion of um, working with him during the primary uh, after uh, after we won the primary because he had been working with uh, Colleen Hanabusa who then stepped forward. And it gave Mike and I an opportunity to get to know each other and, and I just... Um, I just knew uh, that if I were fortunate enough to get elected, uh, if I was fortunate enough that he would agree to be the managing director, that we'd have something very special. And that's how it happened. And that seems to be the sentiment of a lot of people that work, especially in our office, the managing director's office. Um, Mr. Formby, of everything so far, this administration, what are you most proud of? All of the things we've accomplished, which is a lot. And I'll name some? Go ahead. Yeah, rail number one. When we came in, that was a, a major wicked problem, is what we call it. Long time in the media, source of concern for the public. And Mayor and his team turned it upside down, decided to shift the paradigm and approach the FTA a different way and collaborate. And the FTA agreed, and that project is now on track opening in July. So that is a huge success for this administration. And that, of course, was one of the topics that came up this week in the very first town hall meeting. Our first one was at Eva Mackay Middle. And just because it is fresh in our minds, Mayor, your initial thoughts on that meeting, number one. Well, I was really grateful, first of all, for the turnout. We had about 175 people. <clears throat> but more, even more importantly, they came prepared to engage. You know, they, we had a lot of great questions from the audience, but also they were attentive. You know, we brought our entire cabinet, either directors or deputies, and we introduced everyone. We wanted them to feel the the caring, if you will, from our entire team, but also we brought expertise into the room should we have to deal with any questions that uh, required that, and, and that's actually what happened throughout the evening. But I think more than anything, at the end of it all, because they all stayed, there was a really warm applause. We spent probably a half an hour afterwards, at least a half an hour, mixing with the number of the people. They were expressing their gratitude that we were able to come out there. It just it really felt good. It reached the point that I really was hoping for, which was a real engagement of our team with the community, and uh, I think we're off to a great start. What do you hope to get out of these town hall meetings? Well, I think we're going out there to learn. You know, I mean, this is sort of a, a big version, if you will, of, uh, of, uh, of what I do on a weekly radio show. We get a few call-ins, and then sometimes, you know, they help identify issues that are hot points. And, uh, and so last night, even though there were some things, big things that came up that we anticipated, there were some other things that we didn't know about that uh, actually have sparked some real curiosity in our part and maybe a possibility of us intervening uh, to stop some things from happening that seem to be underway. And I think that that's, um, that's, that could be very beneficial. 
And MD, I know you were involved in this type of engagement town halls in the past. What do you think would make this successful? Does it require some kind of follow-up? Do we have to do this every few months, you know, next year? What makes this successful? Yeah, you don't follow up every month, but you definitely follow up with the people that ask you questions. So you have to get back to them. And we have a list of questions that we took home last night, and we will contact those people. Some will meet with, and some will actually follow up telephone calls or emails. And one of the questions that came up that required follow-up was city outreach regarding the Eva Historic Villages, Verona Village. Um, where do you think the problem lies there? Was there some kind of disconnect? Why did, why did that come up? Well, it's been so long. The city bought that property in 1990. Promises were made in 1995, and now it's 2023, and people that lived in those former plantation homes, some of them have, have grown old and passed, and so their heirs, their dependents, want the right to, to buy those homes and live in that village when it becomes an affordable housing project. Did you want to add something? No, we're excited about Verona Village. We're almost there. We intend to bring it to fruition. And at the end of the day, not only will we fulfill on what's been now more than three decades of, of, of an empty promise, for want of a better way to position it, um, but there's a possibility there for 140 homes. It's a, it'll be a substantial community when it all gets said and done. And I'm excited to see that come to fruition. One of the other issues that came up was the Makakilo Drive extension, a problem that's been going on for quite a while, but it's a difficult one. What's the solution there? What's our next move? I know that you kind of mentioned maybe a site visit would help. Well, we're going to do that. Uh, Mike, go ahead. Why don't you take the lead on that? Yeah, the issue with Makakilo Drive extension is that it's a very expensive project. It's uh, rough terrain, hilly, mm-hmm. have to go over some gullies or gulches, so you have to either build a bridge or you have to fill them in. And in order to allocate federal funds to a project like that, it has to go through our metropolitan planning organization. That's called AMPO. And AMPO is comprised of state legislators, city council members, department heads of both the state and the county. And that group has to prioritize the project for federal funds. And it has never prioritized the Makakilo Drive extension for federal funds. So if you don't make it to the top of the list, truth, truth is you're not going to get built. And that's their issue. So they can ask the mayor to commit that he'll do it. But if the mayor doesn't have control over AMPO, he individually cannot make that happen. So what was your suggestion to those committee members that were concerned? How did they get higher up that list? Yeah, and they know because there are some members that are on what's called right. the Citizen Advisory Committee. They know how to do that. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, they haven't been successful over the years, but that doesn't mean they won't in the future. And I'll tell you why. The big project for the city historically has been Salt Lake Boulevard, and they talked about that last mm-hmm. night. We need to finish Salt Lake Boulevard. That needs to be connected all the way from Aloha Stadium up to Salt Lake. It needs to be widened and connected. And until that project is finished, they're probably not going to move up to the top of the list. So it's just a matter of waiting time. And I know it's been a long time, but that's the way government and federal funds work. Yeah, but the good news is the Salt Lake project is underway. And the Salt Lake project was not unlike Makakilo before at one point. So there's hope there for the future uh, that once, as Mike just said, we complete Salt Lake, that we can take a, we can take a look. And we're going to need the community support. That was the one thing we wanted to make sure. And as Mike said, there are people who are experienced there, but they need to be really aggressive uh, at, at helping us you know, make that happen for them in the role that we have. But as, as you just said, we need state and federal help here. It needs to become a priority at that level. It's going to be a very expensive project. Mike, how much do you think that project has been estimated at? Well, back when we went, when we did design initially with an 800-foot bridge, it was over $100 million. I think when they took the bridge out, it dropped to about $60 million, which did not include land acquisition. So it's, it's not a small project by any stretch. All right. 
Um, sticking in the EVA area, also this week you met with the community policing group out there. How, how was that visit? How was that tour? I was encouraged again. This is a, a, a group of people in their neighborhood who care deeply, are very passionate. Uh, they're also very respectful, if you will, not of only each other, but the neighborhood and the integrity that they're trying to protect. So we participated in, in a community walk that had HPD. It had several pastors. In fact, there was even a group there from Mililani who was interested in doing it. They wanted to see how they did it. Uh, and it was literally walking through the streets. Um, being trailed by HPD with the blue and white, you know, going lights going on, uh, and blowing a conch shell, but walking through and by some of the homes and some of the areas where they knew there were problems and let people know that they were there. Uh, we didn't encounter anybody. It's it's not by any stretch a vigilante group, uh, but that's why we had HPD presence there for those people to let everybody else know. We care, we're taking control of our neighborhood, and should anything go on here that we don't wanna have go on, it'll be dealt with accordingly. Uh, an issue that was mentioned by one of the community members, uh, as they were leaving the microphone stand, actually, we didn't get to dive into it at Eva Mackay this week, was about those loud, booming fireworks. We actually heard some as we were arriving to the town hall. Is there anything really that can be done? Boy, enforcement on that is really tough. Right. We've talked a lot about it, but um, as long as, there seems to be this black market of people. I don't even know if they're fireworks anymore. They're almost like explosives. They're that loud. They're that you know disturbing. It's uh, and I think they're also very dangerous as well. You know, as when we talk to police, it's sort of like you have to be on the scene seeing somebody do that. It's pretty tough. Afterwards, they heard a noise, could go back someplace and say, where did that come from? Who did that? So, it's somebody being caught, so to speak, red-handed for want of a better expression, is the only way I think we're going to enforce it. I don't know if Mike has any thoughts on that, but that's just one of the things that I really, that subject is very sensitive because here you have something that's almost cultural, or almost it is, in our high holidays, if you will, although I don't understand the reason why they were exploding last night, and everybody's going to do it knowing full well that it really can't be enforced. It's so, it's so pervasive, right? It's, it's a challenge. Having laws on the books like that um, that seemingly just get disregarded is a very frustrating thing. Earlier this week, the Honolulu Salary Commission approved pay raises for some of the city's top officials, including council members, uh, MD yourself, and, and mayor, you as well. Uh, when people hear pay raises for leadership positions, sometimes they kind of roll their eyes. Um, but why are these warranted in your mind? Well, I feel very strongly about this because, you know, for the last couple of years since we've been in office, we've not put in for a pay raise. I want to give some context before I ask Mike to speak on this as well, uh, and that people sometimes have short memories. And I want to be really careful here because I'm not, I don't have anybody to push back against. In fact, I heard a lot of support of coming forward uh, with respect to what we asked for. But uh, at the end of the day, three years ago this week, in fact, it very, very well might be to this day, I'm not exactly sure, but it was this time in March, three years ago, the city locked down. And the city locked down, and that began in a, a period of time, an odyssey, if you will, into a place none of us had ever experienced before. And in, in, in that was a month after I decided to run for mayor, and just figuring out how to get elected was its own ordeal. But as the months progressed, the scenario got darker and darker, more and more uncertain, to the point where the fear and uncertainty in this town 
was palpable. And I was dealing with it on a regular basis. When you're doing four and five Zoom calls a day campaigning in the middle of a downward spiral like that, and businesses are closing, and people are losing work, and people are getting sick, and people are dying, it was very fearful. And there was not any talk of any vaccines whatsoever. And so in those dark days, somehow we managed to prevail, and we won in November the general election. We won by a wide margin, and I was very, very grateful for that. That then left us with the challenge of putting together a cabinet. And as I said earlier, I was, Mike was my first round draft pick all the way around. And I asked him, I think even on the night that I got elected, and, and he was very gracious in saying yes. But then we went about the task of trying to build a cabinet in really a difficult time, not even sure who might come forward. And we did some unorthodox things because we were coming at it with a different approach and a very different I mean, quite honestly, an unprecedented point in time. And we opened the portal, and and I was really grateful that within 10 days, we had more than 550 applications. We built transition teams to interview. I had to go and negotiate with the hotels just to allow us. We had, I had to hire or rent large ballrooms just to create interview space because of what we had to do in order to have a team of six interview like a candidate because of what the rules were and how many people you could put in. I mean, it was, the obstacle course was incredible. But to our surprise, and what was very humbling to me, is the quality of the men and women who came forward. What I thought was going to be almost an impossible assignment going in turned out to be one of the more humbling and inspiring experiences of my life because we had people coming from all walks, private sector and even other parts of government, wanting to come and join the city because they understood in that moment of time that we were under siege, that we were faced with uncertainty unlike anybody could predict. We were going to be a new administration. There was a lot at stake for Honolulu, Honolulu's future both short and long term because the impact was already devastating and they wanted to make a difference. They wanted to stand up and do something about that. And out of that, we put together a cabinet of 23 out of 26 positions. We retained only three. We had those directors go out and handpick their own deputies. They brought in 18. And when it all got said and done, we put together an assemblage of about 50 people walking in this door. And a number of us got sworn together on January 2nd, 2021 in the darkest of hours. Because at that point in time, there wasn't even talk of a vaccine being readily available, maybe being projected at the end of 21. That's a leadership response for a, a place and a purpose unlike anything I'd ever been associated with. And that's how we began. And so um, you asked earlier about, you know, to Michael what he was proud of. And he brought up the rail. I'm so proud of the cohesion of this team because we looked for certain qualities in people. There were common denominators. We were looking for track records of success. We wanted successful people, people who understood what that looked like, people who had great communication skills, had all those intangible leadership qualities, you know, the people that really um, – had the stomach, if you will, for the challenge at hand, that they would not fade in the face of adversity, that they knew the road ahead would be really difficult. And they kind of came together, not kind of, they came together, and, and, and we started out like that. And when you come in, when you think about the dynamics of a team of 50 coming in to inherit a workforce of some 8,700 people, 8,700 people. And I, in the beginning, and talking about our own culture and everything else we wanted to create, I couldn't even put, we couldn't even put five people in a room for months, you know, at the same time. So all of that said, 
these folks have done a lot. And as Mike said earlier, we've done a lot. He mentioned rail. There's a whole lot of things we could talk about. And I think despite the fact that COVID was an incredible challenge for just about the half the amount of time that we've been in office, two years and three months, where it was more than a distraction. I was doing three Zoom calls a week with the governor and the other mayors. And that's how intense it was. And then even a couple more at the State Department of Health on an ongoing basis. So through all of that, we prevailed and nobody got a raise. And we've passed the last couple of years. And so when that came to my desk about should we put in for a raise of our team, I said, hell yeah. This is a really good group of people who have not, nobody has not come into me once and asked me about they wanted more money. However, we have lost a couple of really good people because they got big offers. And on top of that, a number of our people have been offered and they've declined and not left us out of loyalty. So they get my loyalty right back. This is a tough labor market out there. I've been told more than once you have really good people. People have stayed here, they're being very loyal, and the very least we could do is stand up and say, yeah, they deserve a raise. And it looks like the salary commission agree with us, and I'm proud of the men and women. And I, and I, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't back down on, on the legitimacy of this even a little bit, despite whatever critics may be out there, they don't know. They don't understand the incredible amount of work that goes into this, how challenging this is, but more than anything, because uh, I come from the private sector where you rewarded performance, that's what we're doing here. This has been a really high-performing team under the most difficult circumstances. Anything you want to add, MD? Yeah, I think I'd like to just take a second to clear up a little misinformation that I've seen when I read comments to articles, either in you know, the paper or a private publication. But um, I think a lot of the population doesn't understand how the salary commission works. And it's stood up under the charter, which is our constitution. At the city level, we have a constitution just like the state does, and it's called the charter. And the charter provides that the salary commission will meet and that the mayor appoints three commissioners, the council appoints three, and jointly they appoint the seventh. And this commission is required by charter, so it's the highest law of the city and county of Honolulu. It's required by charter to meet annually and to meet no later than the first week of February and to produce a result, which is be a resolution to council no later than the first day of May. So they have to work very quickly, and they're given information about collective bargaining agreements and excluded managerial salaries, because those are the two groups that fall under the electeds and the appointeds. And they look at that data, and they make sure that there's career progression from somebody who enters the workforce as a low-level worker and rises up through the years to become an excluded managerial, they want to make sure that the elected representatives of the city and county and the appointed, that they are in leadership positions that merit salaries to which the civil servants and excluded managerials can aspire. In other words, you move up in leadership. And what's happened, since there have been no pay raises for the appointeds or the elected since 2019, is we've developed what's called inversion, which means the excluded managerials are actually making more than the mayor, the managing director, the department directors and deputies, and the electeds. And it's not a good situation because it makes it difficult for someone coming up through the ranks to assume a leadership role because they would take a pay cut and it makes it difficult to recruit somebody from industry. So independent of the mayor and the council, independent of me, the salary commission meets, they look at all the data, and then they decide what the mayor, 
the appointeds and the elected members should be paid. And they make a resolution that goes to the council and the council has a choice. If they do nothing, it becomes our salaries. If they reject it, then we get nothing. So, you know, it's, I've just read that somehow the mayor and the, the council chair or the council put this together and it's self-serving and, and uh, we're greedy and it's anything but that. It's how the process works to make sure that the people who work for the city and county are paid according to the system as a whole. And it's about equity and fairness. So when we're looking at the numbers now, it was something like 12.5 for, for deputies, directors, and then a 60% um, for council. Where, where is that percentage based off of? Well, that's based off the numbers. And so they look at those numbers. We, don't, we actually, we don't ever meet with the commissioners. We have no ability, except in public, which we did the other day. We don't meet with them privately, and we don't advocate or lobby for a number. The mayor wrote a letter. He wrote a two-page letter to the salary commission, and he noted to them, that the civil servants in the four years that the electeds and the appointeds had not got a raise, that they got on the order of in excess of 10% pay increases. And the reality is they got more than 13%. And the mayor just said in his letter that he thought it would be fair for the salary commission to give the appointed something in that range. That's how vague he was. Mm -hmm. He didn't ask for a number, a percentage, or anything. He simply said, in the interest of fairness, give my appointees something in the range of what has been given to the civil servants over the last four years. And they went above and beyond that and gave us 12% when in fact the civil servants have got 13 plus percent. So it's clearly within the range of reasonableness, but I think people don't understand how the system works. It's, it's a very small number at the top. If I had to add them up, it's probably in the range of 100 to 120 people that we're talking about in terms of 10,000 employees. And it's, it's important that those people be paid fairly like everybody else. And this is how it happens. It happens through the salary commission. It happens every year. You broke down the composition of the salary commission, though, and like you, I've seen some of the comments. Maybe a some people maybe don't understand, but the commissioners themselves. Um, some people have said, you know, but these are handpicked by the mayor, by the council. You know, so would they have, you know, an allegiance to someone in some sort? But but what are they held to? Because they take an oath. There's something required of these commissioners. Yeah, they do take an oath. But I'll tell you the way the mayor picked them. He picked people that had human relations, you know, human relations department, DHR experience. One of the individuals that he picked had no relationship to us at all. She actually was the HR director for the prior mayor. And he picked her because he simply knew that she understood collective bargaining. She understood the value of equitable, fair pay. And then he picked an outside human resources expert, a woman that's in the private sector. And then lastly, I think he picked um, an individual who's a businessman and who knows what the market commands because we have to recruit from outside. So he picked people that had no personal tie to him at all, but people who knew what it would look like when you produce something that's fair. And one of those appointees is the head of all the, I forget the name of it, but she is the head of all the HR professionals as an organization. Uh, and forgive me for it. It's like the Hawaii Employers Council. Council, yeah, like Hawaii's employee. Yeah, so she's really um, 
uh, perceived to be the consummate expert, and that's what the kind of expertise. You know, you can talk about this commission. I, I would tell you right now, on all the commissions and all of the appointments we've made, and I just said earlier how proud I am of the cabinet we put together and the leadership team. We've viewed all of the commission appointments we've made as if they were extensions of our cabinet. We've put that same kind of due diligence, and we did that kind of outreach. The more challenging thing is we're asking people to do some really tough jobs absolutely for free. These are volunteers. These are people who we perceived and got to know at the top of their game outside. This is across now a number of different commissions who are looking to do something more with their lives, who are willing to volunteer. That could be, you could say that about the police commission. We just had Dr. Libby Char sworn in. They're about to approve somebody else we put forth, and Ken Silver came forward, former fire chief, and Ann Botticelli, who is the top executive at Hawaiian Airlines outside of Mark Dunkley and at Kamehameha Schools and so on and so forth. We've, we have made a lot of stellar appointments. And we've done that based on reputation and integrity and history in this town and knowledge of each other. And that's why people would agree to do that, to suggest that because we had knowledge of these professionals, even though we're not associated with them, and we enjoy a mutual professional respect for each other, and we got them to agree to do this volunteer work, that somehow we're setting everything up for us to, to take care of ourselves is an insult, okay? That's not how we operate on any level at any time. So, you know, it's, I come from a background, I said it earlier, about people being rewarded for performance. If this was a meritocracy on paying our cabinet right now, and if I had my way and we didn't take a pass the last couple of years, we would have been given annual raises that probably by this time would have far exceeded what they just approved. That's how stellar the work has been. This is not, this is not a 40-hour work week. This is not even a 60-hour work week. And, you have, and having been in this job now for two years and three months, have a profound respect for the dedication and service that people have in, in, in this kind of business. It goes way beyond the norm. So anybody outside who could be criticized, especially in light of the success we've had, is uninformed, and quite honestly, I don't have any time for it. We jump back to the percentages real quick. We, we talked about council, and you just said that the people that go above and beyond, the schedule for council is a little crazy, and they were paid for a long time um, as if this was like a part-time job. Um, why, why does it take so long for something like this to happen? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know um, anywhere that it says that it's a part-time job. I think the only way that the, the voters or the taxpayers could assume that electing a council member is a part-time job is the pay that they got. Mm -hmm. They got basically right, 60000 right. a year, and the chair, I think, got 70 something So at that rate, uh, the, the reality is they had to have second, and some of them had third jobs. Mm -hmm. So uh, based on the increase that the salary commission has, has given them, the question, I think, for council to decide is what does that mean? Are they full-time? Are they, are they part-time? Are they three-quarters time? Mm -hmm. I don't know what the answer is. And, and, you know, the good thing for me is that's not my jurisdiction. I don't have to worry about that. So, um, but it's, it's something that the council has to worry about, and the people are reacting to it. And, and I've said publicly that I do think at the, at the former salaries, the, the present salaries, they're not paid enough. This is a $4.5 billion city. We run like a corporation. In fact, we are a corporation. And running that corporation on a day-to-day -day basis takes an immense amount of time on very complex issues. And I don't think people should look at our council members and expect anything less from them than to do their job and do it right. And I think they do. Yeah, let me weigh in on this, too, because I really had nothing to do with these either with the council. But I've 
over the last 48 hours especially, I've given this a lot of thought because of all the noise that's been created. And I've gotten to know this council pretty well. I mean, the six of them that were retained you know, over the last couple of years we've worked together, and I made a special effort to get to know uh, Val Okimoto and, and Tyler Dos Santos Tam and Matt Wire, three, three new council members. And in, in, in those discussions, uh, you start to realize you know, that uh, their dedication is there, but they also have real lives. And so some of them are working more than two jobs just to make ends meet. And I start to think about it, wow, if we have the expectations that we have of the city council on a lot of complex issues, knowing how integral they are to the things that we're doing as an administration, do I really want to have people there who have so much responsibility, you know, that have to, to make ends meet working two and three jobs and then expect them to be on top of this four and a half billion dollar corporation we're running? That that to me is out of whack. Mm -hmm. So I'm not yeah, I and I've really thought about this a lot. I don't even know how this has been allowed to go on that long. So I'm kinda glad this has risen to the surface. Uh, but I agree with Michael, as even currently paid right now, it's underpaid. So if this seems radical, maybe it's just because we're trying to time correct, course correct, an inequity that should not have been in place that we're trying to improve upon, which we've had no direct say in, but I certainly would not say that they're undeserving of that. I would rather have, for want of a better way to say it, whether it's defined by pay or the very fact that they don't have to work two and three other jobs in order to make ends meet, that they have, we have their focus, their attention, that's in the best interest of this city. Well said, and MD, I know that our time is running short with you, but before we let you go, Mayor, do you have any questions for your managing director? <laughs> no, I don't have any questions. I just, I, I, have, I love Michael in this job. He's perfect. I, I was joking back when Tom Brady was still playing football that he was our Tom Brady. I'm going to have to come up with some other, but he, Mike is the guy, um, you know, there's so much to be done, and and um, Mike takes one operational meeting after another. He is a tireless worker. He's smart. The thing about Michael that probably doesn't get enough respect for, given the challenges we face as a team, there is not one director that doesn't come to me privately and tell me how much they love this guy and how much they love working for him and how smart he is. So the city is in really great hands to have a managing director of Mike, Mike Formby's caliber, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Mike, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here, but it's very uncomfortable to be here when the mayor talks about me like that. It's all, you, it's all true. It's great to work for you. That was great having MD here. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, you know, Mike is, uh, Mike is a real thinker, and he's really good at analysis, and so, um, and he really can articulate because he understands. He's really, um, you know, this doesn't usually get said about him, but from what people have told me, not only is he a lawyer, but he's a maritime lawyer, and people consider him to be the best maritime lawyer in the state, and here he is doing this. So uh, I, I, I love his objectivity. You know, it's kind of a blend of he can stay cool and calm, and I tend to get a little fiery on some things. It works well. I've never seen MD get mad. That's a good point. No, I'll tell you what he does do. He gets red in the face. <laughs> <laughs> he, I, and I know when I see the skin color change that, uh, okay, like we either got to adjust the conversation. Uh, Mayor, we're just yeah. over a week removed from your State of the City address. Yes. A lot was laid out on that speech. I want to ask you about the potential reorganization of DPP. We had Director Apuna on last week here on the podcast. You've asked her and her deputy to look into this. What exactly are they looking at, and what are the questions you want them to answer by? Is it the end of this year? 
yes, by the end of this year. I, look, I, as I indicated in last week's address, you know, this department was put together in 1998, 25 years ago, by consolidating three different departments. And it became a behemoth, if you will. And in that also was including the Office of Planning and Permitting and, 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 and consolidating that. And so what's happened over the point of time, as is, is, is we've seen, is that um, we've had a lot of delays. Uh, and for all kinds of reasons, code requirements, staff, I mean, there's the litany of things. And so when we were looking at the problems we were facing at DPP, just like the other problems we were facing, the wicked problems that mm -hmm. Michael talked about a little while ago, uh, and, 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 and trying to understand the problem before we develop the solution, when you look at that and then you look at organizational structure and it becomes very apparent that that organizational structure is part of the problem, then you have to take a look at to see whether or not you should reorganize. And in DPP's case, that is a situation. So it's really in that. And so I've asked them to do an analysis of, of cities where it's all consolidated, as we currently mm -hmm. are, or where it's separated and, and what the efficiencies are, trying to determine that, as well as our own internal situation. So there's a very strong likelihood that we will, when all gets said and done, split out planning and permitting as part of the solution. Mm -hmm. It's not the whole solution. We're investing in people, technology, as we talked about last week, and I'm sure Don did on artificial intelligence, but even beyond that, we're looking at self-certification, we're looking at doing different things and just letting go, we're doing different kind of outreach with a lot of outside organizations. We've not had that kind of collaboration in the past, that kind of involvement, that kind of instruction. So, you know, uh, it's, it's a whole lot of stuff. Um, the reorganization department is just part of it and if for some reason it gets determined it's better we keep it all together while we address all the other things I'll be fine with that too we're just trying to solve what has been a broken antiquated department for decades now for the well-being of this city and 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 looking at reorganization is part of that equation Similarly, you mentioned the reorg of EMS and ocean safety. Yes. This is one every few years we kind of hear of. Why is this one brought up again? Well, it's been ongoing. You know, the ocean safety guys are um, a special breed, and, and so are the EMS people. These are really first responders of the highest order. And you know, I've said in my speech last week that we have the best watermen and women in the world, bar none. And the, the, what they put themselves through out there uh, in, in times of... You know, they make a lot of rescues, heroic rescues, and save lives. They save lives in parking lots as well, not just out in the ocean by telling people don't go there and so on. But, you know, they deal with uh, circumstances that um, people easily get into trouble. And so there's a lot of respect and admiration for that. And then, on top, I mean, given the nature of their work, what they do, a lot of people wouldn't even try to do, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, on top of that, quite honestly, ocean safety's been neglected over the years. You know, they, they, they work out of a, uh, a, a, a house that was, uh, I'm trying to think of a word here, when they, when they you know, houses no longer condemned. A condemned house is the word I could say. A condemned house out on the North Shore. So we should have a world-class facility. Hell, we just, you know, we just hosted the Eddie Aikau, the International Surf Beat, probably one of the world premier events in all of surfing, known globally. And I went out there to give Luke Shepardson his proclamation, and I went over to see where they work out of. And honestly, it's a condemned building mm -hmm. across the street. And we should have something that almost looks like a movie set for the kind of 
lifeguards and, the, and, and what that whole North Shore represents is one example. So, look, we've heard them. They, 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 uh, and we've also heard EMS. And, and quite honestly, these are really dynamic departments um, with people really uh, putting their own selves on the line, who deal on a deal on a daily basis with life and death matters. And if that's going to keep them comfortable in our efforts here, and it's better to keep them separated so they get the maximum, then I'm, I'm all for that, all for that. Also in your speech, you announced the hiring of Denise Iseri Matsubara as your new executive director for the Office of Housing and Homelessness. Um, and the resources that you intend to invest in that office. You talked about a little bit of reorganization there. Can you talk a little more about that office? Well, you know, we opened up this, I opened up um, my entire speech talking about wicked problems and, and wanted people to understand our methodology and how we would be approaching them. And the first two that I talked about uh, was affordable housing and homelessness. And I said that, you know, they are connected, but they require two different strategies. And that's exactly true. And, and, and so um, what I've learned in two years and a couple of months in the job is the housing element is a very complicated scenario. It has its own vocabulary, uh, how things are done, constructed, how things are purchased with certain kinds of bonds and so on. You get terms like HHFDC, which Denise mm -hmm. was running, 201H. Uh, uh, there's just a lot of stuff that requires a mastery of that so that you can be effective. So in our efforts to you know determine what the city's role was in housing, Okay, and what we could possibly do. And I listed off a whole litany of things we're doing into the spirit of what Mike Formby said earlier, what we've been able to do. Because in short order, we've really started to generate some momentum. I realized I was lacking, we were lacking, that kind of expertise and knowledge. So our first effort was to get Craig Harai over here, who really helped us greatly with the private activity bonds and so many other things because he used to run HHFDC uh, before he was a state budget finance director. That was where his passion was. And we were to get Craig to come over here a few months ago. And in short amount of time, his impact was great. But we still needed to have a leader because as it was, I sort of had Anton Krucky doing what he's doing out of community service overseeing, which is really a HUD program and federally funded program. It's very complicated in its own right, overseeing this, combined with Jim Ireland on homelessness and anti, we, we, we were missing a player, mm -hmm. for want of a better way to say it. And and I had known Denise for a lot of years, going way back, and knew how highly regarded. In fact, I watched the other day um, when she had to go through a public testimony, the people who came forward, uh, industry leaders, to speak about you know her, her competence, what she meant, and, and um, how they were going to miss her, but congratulate her at the same time. And so uh, we just went on to get ourselves that player. I, I'm gonna, if I talk mm -hmm. in sports terms, that's it. You're building a franchise, you got a great team, but you know you're missing a certain kind of player. From a coach's standpoint, that's what you do. And that's what we do with Denise. But it's kind of like we got her in the transfer portal, because if you talk about what we can do, state has some responsibility, city yep. has some. And I think about where can we put people? How do you think Denise is gonna navigate that? Just with the knowledge and the background that she has, we're pulling her from a very good area in the state where she's comfortable, knowledgeable, and has all of that. Yeah, that's a very good question, you know, but I think I've told Governor Green that we'll, we will make that work, okay? I mean, the city could play a much bigger role. The state has some other people that are there, uh, and it's ongoing, but we're looking to build the city's capability. And, you know, that was, in coming in, 
everybody talked about affordable housing during the campaign, and they had some kind of plan or some kind of pamphlet or some kind of book or whatever, and I read them all, and none of them made sense, and if you look historically at what's been done, you know, the city has not played an active role uh, at, at mitigating or minimizing or whatever you want to say on the housing crisis that we currently experience. And I felt we had a need to really play bigger and determine that. So, and that's what I talked about last week. We sat around and said, okay, what is the city's role? So let's, let's define that. You know, what are the things getting in our way? Let's define that. And what are the possibilities if we were to address that? And so you come down to needing, it's a coach's game. I said that, I, I called it a player earlier, but it's, it's about that. It's acquiring somebody with the kind of coaching knowledge and skills. Uh, so we'll, we're going to make it work. Uh, also in your speech, a lot of production before this year's address. That was special. Yeah, so I have to thank all of you from the communications <laughs> team for helping me. Look, I originally sat down and filled up basically in the how we started out this conversation today in the pride of our team and their accomplishments and wrote probably what was a three-hour, two-hour speech at least, knowing that that was never going to fly, see if we could get it under an hour. But then also there's, you know, in this job, and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of data and there's a lot of numbers, and you don't want to lose an audience. You know, you want to you give them confidence you want to demonstrate what you're doing and so we really had to work to craft that language to try to get it down so people could follow us you know I don't want to make any inferential leaps I wanted to make it clear and easy to understand but at the same time I wanted to impress everybody with not only the complexity of the job but the competency of the people who are working here and dealing with those complexities to build some confidence in them because it's really important for us if we try to build hope and regain trust in local city government that I wanted that speech to be reflected of that, I thought at the at midpoint here of, your, of our first term that that was deserving. I felt like I needed to do that for the team to represent them. And as I told all of them in the beginning when I asked them for input to help us tell their story, I wanted the speech more than anything to be a celebration of their work. And at the same time, to have the people in the community feel like the people who are in here working on this stuff know what they're doing. And that was the end game. That was what we were trying to achieve. And I think we did. All right, Mayor, this is the One Oahu podcast. So for one final thought. Well, one final thought. Well, there's a lot going on. And I'll tell you, every day it's amazing to me <laughs> what, what pops up uh, from an hour to hour. So I just, you know, look, I have a lot of confidence. I've said this throughout this whole conversation today and the team around us. There's nothing easy about the work, but at the same time, we all know how important and responsible it is. And we just continue to give this our best shot. And as I said at the outset last week, I used the Daniel Burnham quote, we've made no little plans because they have no magic to stir men's blood. I've asked everybody to think big, to embrace innovation, to take risk, and let's just go for it. Mayor, thank you. And don't forget, if you have a question for the mayor, you can submit your podcast questions by heading to oneoahu.org slash podcast. And that town hall tour we talked about has only just begun. There are 10 more to go. Tonight, March 23rd at 7 p.m., we'll be at Waianae District Park. Then next week, Thursday, we'll be at the Philcom Center at 6.30 p.m. To see the full schedule with dates, locations, and times, head to oneoahu.org slash town hall. We hope to see you all there, and we'll hope you'll listen in next week. It's our next episode of the One Oahu Podcast. Until then, aloha.